Some Christian traditions utilize uh, a time of standing when the word is read. And this church has no such custom, at least not consistently. But you think why that's done? It's done in part to show reverence, and that's legitimate, though not required. But also it's done just to acknowledge our mortal nature. We're tired, and standing right before the sermon helps wake people up. At other times, we recognize that the subject matter itself has a way of rousing us. And certainly the passage that we come to this morning is one that will awaken anyone who even hears the words because of its weight. Matthew chapter 10 is our focus this morning, and particularly a passage where Jesus is just about to send his disciples out on their first kind of missionary journey, announcing the things that they've been hearing with him in person. Now they're going to go from town to town and start to announce these things. And Jesus gives them a charge, but he couples it with a warning about what they are likely to experience. Hear together with me the word of God beginning at verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house, Beelzebub, How much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. Let's ask for his special grace. Our Father, we ask that you would please lead us into truth, not only to have a right understanding of it, but to love it. We pray that you would deliver us from doubts or anxieties that reside in fleshly fear, 
and free us through the promises, the assurances that we encounter through Christ's words in this passage. Make us to be what you desire. Even as you'll finish this work in glory, perform it now. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As a child, it was very hard for me to understand why not just some people, but many people were disinterested in the Christian faith. I wasn't raised, as most of you know, initially in a Christian home, but at age 10, I started reading the Bible, and then my family started going to church. And I was so excited for what I was learning about Jesus and about the promises of God, who he is, what he'd done in the past. And it was confusing to me when I had tried to talk about these things with my friends at school, and most of them were politely disinterested, and some of them were less than polite. And it only got harder in some ways from there. And then, at age 20, I remember reading a letter written by George Whitfield to John Wesley, where he was explaining the doctrines of grace, and he's putting the gospel out so clearly. And that was really the first time, I think, that the grace of the gospel clicked clicked deeply for me. I read that letter aloud with a friend, and I remember saying, if this is true, I wasn't even sure it was true. If this is true, this is the greatest news that I've ever heard in my whole life. Because up until that point, I had thought that the gospel was that God will not punish you forever if from now on you acknowledge you're a sinner and try to basically be a decent person. That's essentially what I thought it was, understanding, believing in Jesus to have created a second chance. And I know that many of you used to think that as well, and I fear that some of us may still think that because I was still thinking it, and I was in a teaching position in a church. But then it became clear, and the Lord opened my eyes, and I saw, no, the gospel is that God, in mercy, before we had done anything to merit it or ever would bring ourselves to him, God sent forth his son, very God of very God, into this world, not only to bear the punishment for human sin completely, so that you don't have to pay anything into that, but lived completely a perfect human life as an offering for us. So that those who believe, his righteousness is counted to you through faith alone. And then not only that, you think that right there is great, but then he sends forth the Holy Spirit in power, and the Holy Spirit enables us gradually but truly to become conformed to Christ's character, because to the Christian, the, even worse in some ways than the condemnation of sin is the presence of sin. I don't want to be without love for God and my neighbor anymore, and it distresses me that I still am without that. And the promise that God would freely give us his spirit and change us from glory to glory is glorious. And then not only that promise that there's this progress in this life that is real, but then that in the age to come forever, we will have communion with God and with his people. To dwell in the resurrection with a new creation. Such things so fully transcend human expectations, humbled expectations, that I could not understand, in one sense, why the good and rational people of the world didn't want this. Until I came to understand more from Scripture that the world is not full of good and rational people. It's full of people like me. It's full of people like you, 
People who by nature, to use the words of one person, are turned in upon themselves like an ingrown nail. It's a disgusting picture because it's a disgusting reality. We turn in upon ourselves in unbelief, in love of the things of this life, in love of not being under absolute accountability. People have a lot of different reasons to turn away, but the Bible says, apart from the grace of God, no one would come. What the gospel, the true gospel offers, is not desirable to the unchanged nature of fallen human beings. Place myself in the same category. And so it was confusing to me when I was younger, why don't people receive this? And perhaps it was demoralizing to the disciples as well, as they go out to the visible church, not out to, you know, open unbelief, but they're going around Israel to the visible church, and Jesus warns them, you're going to be rejected, flogged, scorned, killed. How demoralizing, because of course they want to see the gospel succeed. They want to see people coming to faith. And he warns them, no, 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 there's going to be opposition. And it's in light of this perennial possibility of persecution that Christ wants you to receive certain assurances. On the one hand, he's not guaranteeing that you'll go through the full severity that some do, but you have to brace yourself for it. On the other hand, you aren't to draw your resources from yourself. You draw them from the assurances that the Lord gives us. And so as we consider this passage together, we're going to do so under three main divisions. Three main divisions. The first, we're going to look at Christ's command to evangelize. Then secondly, we're going to look at his warning. What should we anticipate if we actually do? And then finally, we're going to look at several assurances that Christ gives to people who are bold with the gospel. Starting again with the first one, let's look at Christ's command to evangelize. Verse 27, where it basically says that we are to evangelize as a church, but also as individuals, boldly and broadly. Verse 27, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. When Jesus says, what I tell you in the dark and what you hear whispered, is referring to the fact that in the initial stage of his ministry, more or less the first two years, he spoke largely in parables in public settings that obscured the real sense of what he's saying until such a time as it would become appropriate to teach and explain and have the masses know what was being said. But to the disciples, he spoke plainly and he, ex- he made them to understand what is the nature of the kingdom? Who is he? Now, there are many different reasons why he did that. And the purpose of this sermon is not to go into them. But the point here is that going forward, Jesus says, It's not going to be like that anymore. Say it in the light. You could expand that more broadly in broad daylight. And he doesn't mean, of course, you know, that this is restricted to the literal daytime. He's saying it's not something that we cloak. Remember Nicodemus coming in darkness, doesn't want anybody to see what he's talking about. The Christian faith is something that we don't simply bring secret initiates into, but we share it openly. He says, proclaim it on the housetops. And that might seem a little bit strange, especially for our children who grew up seeing houses that almost all have pitched roofs. It doesn't seem very safe to be proclaiming the gospel on, although proclaiming the gospel is dangerous in different ways. But there in the Middle East to this day, and also in New Mexico, you can find in very, very hot places, why not here, I'm not sure. In very, very hot places, often the roof is flat. And during the cooler part of the year, people will go up to the top. If you don't have air conditioning, you can go up there and 
you're enjoying the outside air, and it was a, a place to lounge and to entertain. Oftentimes, in a less wealthy home, animals were kept in the bottom, and people would largely sleep up on top if the weather would allow it. And so when Jesus says this, on the one hand, he probably does mean occasionally, literally, this is what was going to happen. And the Bible doesn't preserve for us every account of the apostles' teaching. I'd be surprised if at different times they didn't use those natural platforms to proclaim the gospel. But if you left it there, what a loss. That's not really the point. Really, Jesus is saying that these people that he's sending out, and by extension the church, have an obligation to maximally make known who Christ is, why he has come, and what is expected of human beings in response. Here we are to use whatever platform, so to speak, are naturally given to us to take advantage of them. Now, in the immediate context, we should note something. He is speaking to specific men. Specific men like Peter and James and John, whom God gifted and then called to be apostles. The word apostle literally means somebody who has been formally sent out. Not everyone is an apostle in that sense. Not everybody is a pastor. Not everybody is an evangelist in the formal sense. And so it's possible to read a passage like this and say, like, okay, that's what is expected of the people with a public position. But for me, you know, I don't really have gifts of speaking. I'm just going to keep it to myself. I want the church to do what the church is doing, but I'm not really going to talk to people. And you may never say that aloud, but our actions reveal that is functionally what we think that somebody else does the evangelizing. But here I would only draw your attention that there, while there is truth in that, some people have a more developed duty, a more broad duty, because of the gifting and calling they have, there's a universal quality to this calling as well. Look at me at verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Not because acknowledging Christ merits something, but this is indicative of having the Holy Spirit at work in you. This is one of the fruits of genuine faith. Verse 33, whoever denies me before man, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever, not just the apostles. Now somebody could say, how does this work with somebody like Peter? I thought Peter denied the Lord and he, he wasn't denied by Christ. We shouldn't reduce this to one snapshot, one day of a person's life. Let's talk about the character of their life. And thank God we have the story of Peter denying Christ to remind us on our worst days. The Lord is gracious, we fall short, but we're talking about the character, the tenor, the aims, the goals of the Christian life. If you were to compare Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem until I pour out the Holy Spirit upon you to become witnesses in Judea and Samaria and all the earth. And then when he pours out the Spirit, he doesn't just pour it out upon the twelve. He pours it out upon hundreds, and then the Spirit is continually sown into us, even to this very day. So that's who the Lord desires to be witnesses, everyone who has the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 8 says that the whole church was being persecuted and was scattered. And then it says in Acts chapter 8, and they all went about evangelizing the word. The literal Greek there is they went about proclaiming the good news of the word of Christ. Everyone had some role to play in making Christ known in the world. 
And so this is God's will for us, is that we would proclaim the gospel boldly and broadly according to our gifts. At this stage, I don't really ask you to puzzle over where exactly am I going to do this? What exactly does it look like? But even ask yourself, do I acknowledge this demand? Do I desire, by God's help, to be more bold? And I put it to you as a question, sincerely. What do you think would happen if you were significantly more bold in your faith towards Christ? And I'm going to make a distinction here. I don't simply mean significantly more bold in our Christian ethics. There is need for that. But we have to make a distinction here. Many, many Christians do find it considerably easier, less awkward for them to pound their fist over the ethics that we expect of this world, and yet say very little about our joy in Jesus Christ that we've been reconciled to God, that we've been justified through faith. And you may have relatives who know all about your Christian politics, and again, I'm not saying there's not a place for that, but they don't actually know what you believe about Jesus, why you love him. Have you had that talk with them? Hey, I just want you to know why I love Jesus, what I think he did for us. Many Christians are not actually bold about the gospel. What would happen if you were? On the one hand, I think that we would see more fruit from it because the one who sows much should expect, in general, greater harvest. On the other hand, there is a likelihood of pushback and opposition, that that would increase. Not simply because of who the world is, but because of who our enemy, the devil, is. That there is real opposition, and in some ways, I think our enemy is relatively content to hear us say all kinds of things, as long as it's not the genuine gospel, as long as genuine, gracious love is not being practiced. And so Christ warns us, this brings us to our second division, he warns us that anyone who proclaims the faith or aligns himself with those who do, very likely will face severe opposition. Now when I say likely, I want to make a few things clear here. Severe persecution is not necessarily a mark of individual faithfulness. Severe persecution is not necessarily a mark of individual faithfulness. In part, that's because, in general, God does mercifully spare the vast majority of genuine believers from going through the worst that could happen. Conservative estimates say that between 2019 and the present, an average of 5,000 Christians die each year in direct relationship to professing their faith. And that might be a significantly lower number than you would expect. Maybe it's higher than you would expect. But considering that there are literally billions of professing Christians in the world, I look at that and say, oh God, thank you. Now at other times in history, that number has been considerably higher. Sometimes in one day, like the St. Bartholomew's Massacre, if you know anything about that. Estimates, conservative estimates, anywhere from 20,000 to 100,000 Christians martyred in a day. In general, God has shown great mercy to believers. He knows what we can endure, and he grants us a lot of freedom. And so we shouldn't go looking for persecution as the authentication of our faith. On the other hand, sometimes some of those who think they suffer for the gospel are not suffering for the gospel, but for how they go about trying to proclaim And that's a reality, too, that we have to acknowledge. Some of those who suffer do so for fleshly or foolish reasons. 
not for the offense of the gospel itself. When we find uh, the descriptions of the apostles in the book of Acts preaching, their words were highly offensive in the sense, not because they were trying to be offensive for its own sake, but the very truths they were claiming were offensive. But we don't see accusations that they're, you know, like yelling through the door of someone who's sleeping, a leader at night, just being obnoxious. But some of those who suffer, you have to ask yourself, what is the cause of my suffering? However, all of us, I believe, in light of this passage and others, have to brace for the real possibility. It's like sandbags for a storm. You ready yourself, and then you pray, God, if you will, spare us going through it. But you ready yourself. Look at what it says in verse 17. Jesus says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. What a comfort to see that ultimately the purpose of this is that God strategically places some believers in the context where they might witness even to those who are in high authority to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Persecution is not pointless. But here we see from the beginning, the church shouldn't be surprised when the civil government is in opposition to them. Very few Christians have ever actually suffered merely for saying, I'm a Christian. Because almost always there's someone who also says, I'm a Christian, who's willing to play ball with the world and to compromise. Typically when Christians suffer under various civil authorities, it's because they were unwilling to comply with laws or orders that violate their conscience in light of the scripture. You have to brace yourself for that. Now, that doesn't mean that every time the gospel is preached clearly that the government's going to come down on people. Our country has for centuries now enjoyed a fairly anomalous peace and for a variety of reasons. When the gospel was heralded, say, in the first great awakening to great effect, it wasn't as if immediately thereafter, you know, uh, a government rose up in persecution of the church. So we should not assume that, but on the other hand, we should accept this was in the terms. This is what we agreed to. This is what we were asking the Lord to do in us when we laid a hand to the plow. You notice also he mentioned synagogues. So these are places of, uh, you know, they're religious communities. I don't think it's at all limited to Judaism, though, in the first century. In fact, frequently, the most heated, the most zealous violence against the true gospel has come from those who did so in the name of one or another religious ideology, whether that be Islam or whether that be, on the opposite end of it, versions of professing Christianity, very likely have killed as many or more than other religious groups, or whether that be a completely a secular form of religion, an atheistic philosophy, which I will categorize as a religion because it has a metaphysics, whether or not it acknowledges it. That is, they believe certain things about meaning and morality, even if they don't acknowledge God. So functionally, it's a belief system grounded in a philosophy. All of these become sources of attack, and we should not be surprised at that. We shouldn't be surprised at that, even as the world may say that its religions are all essentially the same and they're all about love. That's not true. They're not all about universally bowing to the historical claims of God come among us to be crucified. They don't agree on that. Revelation chapter 17, John has a vision. 
an atrocious vision. It shakes him up in a way that other things in that book, strange as they are, don't. He has a vision where he sees a beast that it says in context clearly represents uh, civil authority. And he sees a woman riding that beast. And I leave it to you to read Revelation 17. But he's awestruck and uh, disgusted at what he sees. He describes this woman riding the beast. Verse 6 says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When you think about how the church is represented as the bride of Jesus Christ, here this is an image of an apostate spirituality, a form of religiosity that has harnessed the reins of civil authority. This is not shocking in that sense. It shouldn't shock us that this happens in the world. It grieves us, but we knew this would happen. Most often, probably more painfully for many of us, it's not going to come from civil government or from your religious community, although for some of you coming out of other religious backgrounds, that's been the case. But it instead is those who are closest to us, our family or our friends. Look at me at verse 37. Do not think, okay, Jesus is anticipating you're going to think something else, and he knows best. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. It's good that he said that because it seems absolutely everybody seems to think that what Jesus came for was to make everybody get along. He says, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. Not because he hasn't come to bring peace to individuals who believe, but he says, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, when he says, I came to bring a sword, you have to hold this in light of such passages as when Peter draws a sword to use it in defense of Jesus. And Jesus says, Peter, put your sword away. That's not the way that my kingdom is going to expand by coercion, by physical violence. And yet he's come to bring a sword, which the scripture describes as his message. The word forms separation. The word brings division. And it doesn't come by way of making the believer then hate their unbelieving family. If anything, hopefully, it forms an even deeper loyalty to that person, recognizing I was called in the Lord to love you. In some ways, I can bear witness to that. Following my conversion, I think I loved my parents more than I ever had before then. Recognizing, oh, God, the God of all destiny put these people out of the billions into my life, and I get to be a witness to them. And yet we have to anticipate that there would be this sword, whether that comes literally as sometimes does happen, sadly, in this world. Families perform honor killings in some places, probably this very week. But often it comes just in the form of alienation or the lack of intimacy being able to be maintained because you just believe so differently about many things now. And so Christ warns us so that we would anticipate and prepare. Again, it's like putting out sandbags. You think the storm might come? You get ready for it. And our prayer is not for persecution. I, I, I want you to understand that. We don't pray for persecution. Persecution is a sin. So we don't ask for that to happen. But we ask, Lord, if it should be your good wisdom to allow this, we trust that you will do good through it. Please preserve us through it. He warns us. And then also, he gives us certain assurances to help us. And these are what's actually what's in the bags, per se. What's inside of that sandbag? Something solid, something heavy, something that's not going to move when the waves come and the water beats down. 
And this brings us to our third division, the assurances that he gives to anyone who would be bold in the faith. First, recognize in verse 39, he promises you are on the path to life. Verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Wouldn't that be the temptation? And there's testimony of people who have gone through the worst possible things to show this is what they thought through. Wouldn't it be the thought that the enemy brings forward as you are suffering deeply for your faith, approaching death, what if I'm wrong? And I only had one life to live, and I'm pouring it out for this. How can this be God's way if so many are against me? What if I just misunderstood it? And there's an aspect of humility in there, but there's also an aspect of sin because he's spoken so clearly. But Jesus says, no, you are on the path to life. And I warned you in advance to hold on to these promises. You think about the martyr Stephan as Stephan is being stoned to death. What do people think is going on as they look at this? If you were there and you see all of these people picking up rocks and basically burying this man while he lives, you'd think, he's dying. But the scriptures would have us to understand something very different. As he's looking upon Christ in glory, he's coming to life. Life has been begun in us, but it's growing. We are growing in union, expectation. We go to something far better. Paul says to depart and be with Christ is far better. We have to call that to mind when we suffer. James chapter 1 verse 12. James 1 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Sometimes Christians, especially in the early church, have been accused of like having a, a martyr complex where they want to die just to make a point. And I don't think that's fair to them. They were willing to die because they fully believed, I'm on the better end of this deal. I go to glory. And the Lord calls us to hold that in mind. Secondly, look at verse 26. You see that those who suffer are participating. They have the privilege of participating in the inevitable victory of Christ. Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What's the have no fear of them relative to the four here? He doesn't say have no fear of them because they're not going to succeed in hurting you. That's not what he says. What is the fear of the mature Christian? That the gospel will remain hidden. That the gospel will not be expanding into the world. And the temptation sometimes is, maybe I should keep this to myself strategically so that it can go out at some later time. And again, we are not under an ominous threat of physical violence here in general. However, in many places in the world, that is the temptation. We will only have our meetings secretly. We will, it's all secret evangelism. My point is not to pour score on my brothers and sisters. I trust I would feel the same impulses. But when we look in the early church, we find the apostles, especially particularly those who have been appointed as teachers, as evangelists, they're walking into the public space. It is a Tiananmen Square moment for them in the Christian faith. I believe that is what we're called to. And there's this thought, well, if I, if I hold it back a little bit, 
It'll work out better in the long term. Jesus says, nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. In other words, the gospel will succeed. The apostles had to hold that in mind as Peter is being marched to crucifixion. As Paul is being moved towards beheading. They had to say, the gospel doesn't die with me. The Lord will raise up others. It is going to go out. And look at that in the world. The gospel is believed and cherished in more than a hundred nations, more than a thousand languages this day. It is the most expansive culturally of all faiths by an incomparable margin. It has done the very thing that Christ said it would do in spite of all of the persecution. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, over the course of 20 centuries who have died for the faith and suffered in various ways. As Tertullian said in the third century, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. If I can respectfully modify a, a, one of the church fathers, the seed is the gospel, but the blood certainly conditions the soil. It makes people wake up and look, and the Lord uses that to show people they must actually believe this. It's not for the money. It's not for the positions of authority. In some ways, it's, it's beneficial to us at times to have our place in society stripped back and pruned to make it clear why we are committed to this. Third and finally, those who suffer belong now to God's household, and that cannot be taken away. Look at verse 25. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, that is the devil, how much more will they malign those of his household? The world will show at least an amount of respect typically for Jesus. But for us, we should not be surprised. But then notice Jesus says those of his household. And something's happened here. You have been repositioned in a new home. That doesn't dissolve instantly your natural bonds. But it means that you have a lasting position in the household of God, that we have been adopted in Christ, that we are now heirs with him. And this is something he calls us to hold on to. Remember, people come to Jesus and they say, hey, your mom and your sisters and brothers, they're outside. And Jesus says, to speak their, their attention, their curiosity, who are my mother and brothers? Those who know my word and they do it. The assurance that we belong to his family, this, this assurance is made to ground you because some of you may pass through this, or you already are, or you have. I was 10 when I first made a profession and was baptized. And when I was 14, I took, I have not up to this point spoken about this from the pulpit, though many of you know it in person. I say this by way of testimony. I think it's good for us to testify to one another concerning the grace we've experienced. The reason why I didn't speak about this previously was because my mother was not yet passed. Uh, My natural mother was not a believer. And when I was 14, my my parents had divorced. She lived elsewhere. Uh, I basically took a stand over an issue. I said, I think something's wrong that you are doing. And I was in agreement with my dad, who was a believer. And I remember my mother saying to me, if you believe that, you are not a child of mine, and you are not a child of God's. There's more there, but we did not, the the relationship ended for about 20 years. When I was 21, I wrote her a letter after I'd come to that deep sense of the gospel. 
I wrote her a letter basically saying, I bear you no ill will, and I, I want only what God wants for you. But there was still no real response, no on-ramp for relationship. And I, I thank God, uh, in the last years before she passed, the Lord seems to have brought her to faith. In fact, some of you know, I visited her. She died with Heidelberg 1 on her lips. And the Lord was gracious to us. That's not always the case. But that doesn't change that for 20 years, a, a young boy was without the relationship that he desired with his natural mother. But I remember the week that happened, I was reading through Matthew devotionally, and I was still a brand new believer. And I came to Matthew chapter 19, verse 29. Everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. And God had given me faith, and I, I implore you, look to him for faith. That was such an anchor. It wasn't that I was strong, it's that the word is faithful. And this promise, I haven't, and you cannot give up anything and outgive the Lord. He knows how to dry eyes. He knows how to bring healing. And he calls us to look at these things. And I implore you then, if you haven't already felt fear about what it might cost you to be a Christian, brace yourself for it. Don't presume that you've got this natural courage and you're just going to withstand. Peter did that, he failed. But later when he leaned into the promises of the Lord, then he was able to walk towards crucifixion with his head held up. Lean into these promises. You're headed towards a better life. You're not on the losing side of history. You belong to the Lord's house. And I implore you, ask yourself, what really is the alternative? What is, that's, what is it? Look with me at one last passage and then we'll close in prayer. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, the context he's writing to a church where many people are tempted to turn back to a Christ-denying form of Judaism as they are suffering the costs of turning away from temple sacrifice and the rituals, the dietary laws, all of that. These early Jewish Christians... They're tempted to turn back, and here he just squares with them, really, what's, what's your choice? Verse 32, he says, Think back on the early days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful even though it meant terrible suffering? Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule and were beaten. Sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same things. You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail, and when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. Patient endurance is what you need now, so that you will continue to do God's will. Then you will receive all that he has promised. For in just a little while, the coming one will come and not delay. And my righteous ones will live by faith. But I will take no pleasure in anyone who turns away. When Israel came to the Jordan River, God's intention for them was that they would cross it just once. They go into the land, fighting ahead of them, suffering ahead of them, but they're not going back across that river. Your baptism was a river never to be recrossed. Come what may, we've entered the land. 
May God help us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the high privilege of bearing even the tiniest suffering for a Savior who endured so much for us. We thank you that upon the cross, he endured the full weight of judgment for our sins. And we ask that you would please help us to have compassion towards the lost, not to be deformed through a misunderstanding of our convictions about election or all of those things, such that we would not be your means, but that we would yearn to make Christ known through your grace. Please help the church throughout this country and the world to hold fast to this calling. And please honor it by drawing people in our own lives to the faith. But through everything, please preserve us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.